0: Father, we thank you this morning for your word, your word that shows us the right path, the way of blessedness. Father, I pray today that you'd open up our hearts and our understanding, that as we explore your word together, Lord, we would realize the great injustices of our world will one day all come to an end, that you will ultimately triumph over all evil. Even though we see through the course of history moments where you have done that, we also see that there are moments of injustice and where evil seems to be winning. Lord, I pray today as we leave this place, may we know in our heart, may we walk in a quiet confidence, a strong assurance that you are prevailing, that you control even the evil in our world and you allow it to only happen to a certain level and then you transform and use it to do your good purposes. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles again. Just keep moving to the last book of the Bible. We've been doing a series out of the book of Revelation, probably one of the most uh, challenging and most misunderstood book in the Bible. And uh, I think as we look at it today, we're going to continue to hopefully give you Uh, another way to see some things that maybe will be helpful to you as you read through this book. In our political system of democracy, we have this opportunity to select people. Our vote is given or withheld based on who we are and what we value. We are either for a candidate or for another, and tensions many times can run high, and You know, like we're in a municipal election, tomorrow's the day to vote. I believe as Christians we have a responsibility to vote. We should take advantage of that amazing freedom that has been secured for us. When we look at the last U.S. election, I think we recognize how high tensions can run. I think they're still living with that tension, do you not? You know, Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton... But how many know the people who say, well, it doesn't matter who you vote for. Let me just say something. If you don't vote, you let others make decisions for you. You know, often when we make decisions and when it comes to elections, I notice a lot of it has to do with the economy. And that's one consideration. But I also want to point out, there has to be some deeper considerations than this, the economy. There has to be moral considerations. Because once a person or a party gets into power, if we don't fully understand where they're coming from, we can actually experience some negative experiences in our personal lives because of the leadership in these systems. As a matter of fact, we can think of back in the 1920s and 30s when Germany you know, allowed Nazism to seize control of their country. And how many know that even though some people objected, eventually their voices were stilled and quieted. And the outcome was terrible. I mean, people lost their freedoms. As a matter of fact, Austria actually had a plebiscite and voted to allow Germany to annex itself in 1938, little knowing the kind of a loss of freedoms they have. A number of years ago, I was listening to a series. There was a book and then uh, some films by Francis Schaefer. And there was something he said that I have never forgotten. And he brings one of his arguments in this series called, How Shall We Then Live? And he said it this way. People, he said, are willing to sacrifice freedom for personal peace and prosperity. Now, that's an interesting trade-off, isn't it? When we start getting so concerned if there's anarchy that we eventually want security, but at the expense of freedom. And what happens eventually is people don't even have the freedom to speak. Freedom don't have have the, the ability to express themselves in worship. And I believe that we are living in a moment in our own country where our freedoms are actually being challenged right now. And a lot of people are just totally unaware of it. Gerald Johnson once pointed out, the question is never, will I be a disciple? Every human being on the face of the globe is a disciple of someone or some ideology or ideology. So the question is never, will I be a disciple? The question is always, whose disciple will I be? Whose whose Follower will I become? The question is never, will I be influenced by a spirit? The question is always of all the spirits at work in the world, to which spirit will I yield? The question is never, will I live by the values of a kingdom? The question is always of all the kingdoms competing for our allegiances, whose kingdom values will we live by? Will I? You know, the question is never, will I wear a set of uh, of glasses? but rather as I look out in the world and try to make sense of what is going on and my place in it. Everyone wears a set of glasses. Everyone has a set of deeply held basic presuppositions about how things are. And the question is always, whose set of glasses will I wear? In other words, you know, a lot of times we think the media is you know, unbiased. Let me just—I just read an article in our paper, and, it, and the media admits that they're biased, and we need to be aware of that. There was a day when there was at least two sides because you know there was competing uh, value system. But you know what's happened in our world? The media has been secured by basically one side, and that's predominantly what we are hearing. You know, the question is never, "Will I be a disciple?" The question always is, "Whose disciple will I be?" Now, the vision that John is giving us from the book of Revelation, he's received this vision of Christ and he's received a vision of what's about to transpire and what has been transpiring and what will continue to transpire. And what, he, what we saw a couple of weeks ago, and for those of you that are, maybe this is your first time here, I'll just say this, that we do have a podcast and I did speak on chapter 13 Uh, Two weeks ago, last week was Thanksgiving, I spoke on Thanksgiving, but um, just to let you know, we looked at that chapter about the mark of the beast and all these ideas that are out there about what is that all about, and I, I brought all of that out. I'm not going there today, but I want to say this, that at the end of chapter 13, we see this unholy trinity, we see a false prophet, we see Satan, and we see the Antichrist, and we see the kind of evil that they're wrecking in our world today. But chapter 14 is actually showing us the ultimate end of their evil. I want to just say to us that evil is always short-lived. It can only go so long. And I said a couple weeks ago, you know, Hitler promised Germany a thousand-year reign and they couldn't even pull off 20, 20 years. They couldn't pull off two decades. So evil has a short shelf life. Thank God for that. Chapter 14 is meant to encourage us to be faithful And also to warn us against succumbing to the temptation that sin and Satan offer to us in this world. We're always going to be confronted. And when evil seems to be winning, it's so easy to give up and yield to the evil. And isn't that true in our lives when temptation is so great, it's so easy to give up and yield to temptation. But there are here in chapter 14, three interrelated visions But we're only going to look at two of them today. And the reason being is as I was working on this, I recognized instead of trying to do three points and not finish the third one anyways, I just stopped at two because I have enough material. Believe me, there's so much in chapter 14. So let's just take a look at these interrelated visions. And uh, the first one is simply that of faithful saints. How many know it's incredibly important that we remain true to God in spite of temptation. How many know that's kind of important? How many know it's really important to remain true to God in spite of evil beginning to predominate, especially in cultural institutions? And that's what Satan is trying to do, folks, if you don't realize it. He's trying to overcome the various institutions that we're living in. If he can take over the media, he'll do that. If he can take over government, he'll do that because then he can become oppressive. And actually, I shared a few weeks ago that we either lead like a beast or we lead like Christ, the Lamb. We either oppress people or we actually serve people. There's only two directions in which we're going. It's either about us or it's about others. And so we recognize that as believers... We are engaged in a tremendous spiritual battle. And I think sometimes we forget that. And we kind of get locked into life as we see it in a material sense. But we forget the powers that are working behind the scenes, trying to destroy not only institutions, but also relationships, families, and actually trying to destroy individuals you know, through distressful thoughts in their minds and all kinds of problems. But today in our culture, we're minimizing this actual conflict that's happening in our world. I'm just going to go back here and just point out this text of Scripture that the Apostle Paul wrote to remind us of the spiritual battle. He says in the book of Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10, Finally be strong in the Lord. Now, this is not being strong in ourselves. This is being strong in Christ. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Now. where where does that power come from? Well, it comes from God. And when God's Spirit fills us, that's a powerful force in our life. And when we're full of God, we're able to have the right attitude, we're able to resist temptation, and we're able to identify and discern the evil that is around us. But, But if we're weak in the Lord, we tend to begin to embrace the culture and the values around us. He goes on, put on the full armor of God. Now, how many know if you're in the military, you don't have your your armor on, your weaponry and stuff on, you're going to be in bad shape. You're going to be, you know, hooped going out to do battle. He says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. That word schemes there is strategies. You need to understand right now, Satan is working creating strategies to defeat us as believers and to defeat the kingdom of God on this planet. That's what he's working on. He, you know, he actually realizes he's not ultimately going to win, but he's going to take down as many people as he possibly can. He's going to destroy as much as he possibly can because he is a destroyer by nature. And Jesus said the thief comes but to steal, kill, and to destroy. That's his nature. And he's a liar. Then it says... For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And I think this is where we really struggle in our lives because so often we deal with issues or people or situations and we find that we're in contention with individuals. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. He said, Our problem is not people. The people that you say, Well, this person's bugging me or this person's causing me grief or this person is my enemy or this person's treating me poorly. We, we keep looking at the person and saying they've got problems or whatever. I'm going, no, look beyond the person. There's a spirit at work working through that person and causing havoc in our lives. That's what Paul is talking about. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms if you cannot identify your enemy, you're defeated. That's true. And I think a lot of us, we have lost sight of who our enemy is. And we're going to find out, and I said it last week in my sermon, our enemies are a lot different than what we think. Our enemies are things like sickness. Our enemies is things like sin. Our enemies is broken relationship. Those are the true enemies. It's not the people. We've got to get past that and see beyond that. And then he says, therefore put on the whole armor of God so that when the day of evil comes. Now notice it does not say if the day of evil comes. That would be more hopeful, wouldn't it? Then we could say, well, maybe I'm going to miss that day. But it doesn't say that. It says when the day of evil comes. And that suggests to me that we have to have a certain mindset in this world to be successful. If you don't think you're in a battle, you're at a huge disadvantage when there's people that are adversaries against you. And there's a lot of people, you know, in our world, they're just oblivious to problems around them, but that doesn't mean they're safe. Here he's warning us. He said, listen, a day of evil will come. As a matter of fact, uh, Jesus said, in the world you will have what? Troubles. So Jesus is actually preparing us for the difficulties that we're going to experience, And if we're not ready for them, we fall apart. Matter of fact, the apostle Peter writes, he says, to arm your mind, be prepared to suffer. Now, if you think that, you know, suffering is an abnormal thing, you're going to be upset with God. You're going to be blaming God for the way life is turning out. I'm telling you right now, we are fighting a spiritual battle. We have a very aggressive enemy who's plotting against us with strategies and is looking to terrorize and destroy our lives. And if we're oblivious to that, we are going to be defeated. That's why he writes this. He tells us, listen, put on the full armor of God. What does it mean to put on the full armor of God? You know, some people think that this is literal. This is not literal, folks. This means understand who you are in Christ. Understand your position in Christ. Understand that you are saved by God's grace. You're not saved by how you perform. You're saved by God's forgiveness. You're saved by what Christ has done for you. You're saved by God's power. Isn't those beautiful things? You know, God is the one that's doing the work in our lives. And then he says here, once you put on the full armor of God, you're able to stand your ground and have after you've done everything, to stand. You know, most people do fall apart. Most people run away. We need to stand. We need to take a stand. We need to understand Then he says, uh, after that, he goes on and talks about the full armor of God. What are things in the armor of God? Well, the breastplate of righteousness. That means I do the right thing. Or the sword of the Spirit. That means I understand the word of God. You know, we need to give ourselves to the word of God because that'll help us be able to fight a battle. Do you know the enemy comes? He's a liar. He's going to constantly be lying at your mind all the time. You're going to hear lies all the time. You have to defeat those lies, you know. Some of you, you have the lie. You've been told all your life you don't have any value. You're worthless. That's a lie. You were created in the image of God. See, you have to know the Bible. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Whatever the issue is in your life, you need to understand what that issue is. You need to find the word of God that applies to that issue in your life and you need to remind yourself of the truth of God's word and say, I refuse to give in to that lie about myself. Or about somebody else. I need to stand on the truth, and that'll help you through your situation. So let's begin here by looking at this vision of John here in chapter fourteen. You know, he says in verse one, he says, "Then I looked, and there was before me the Lamb." I got to ask the question: Who is the Lamb? How'd you know that? How you know that's the? How you know that's Jesus? What? Well, the Bible tells me so, Pastor. He's the Lamb. John says, Behold the Lamb of God. So we know from the Bible who the Lamb is, right? Now, when I look at Jesus in Revelation, I look at the Lamb who was slain. Isn't that an interesting picture? Then later on in that book, I see a lion, and that represents Jesus. Doesn't it get kind of confusing sometimes? You know? And then sometimes the Bible says Satan is a lion. You and I have to understand these symbols in their context. Now listen to what it says here. Then I looked and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, I want to remind us of something. Chapter 13, we read about the mark of the beast. Remember that? That's chapter 13. Oh, I forgot to tell you. Do you know that these chapter divisions were only introduced in your Bibles in the Middle Ages? And so you're having a contrast between the beast and the people who are marked by the beast, who have the, the you know, the, the what is it, the mark of the beast on their forehead or in their, for, in their hand, right? And then you have here the lamb and those who are followers of the lamb who have his name written on their forehead. Now, I've got to ask the question, do you think this is a literal thing? You see, a lot of us think that way, and that's because we've been taught that. I'm going to say to you, it could be, but basically, I would argue, it's symbolic. And what it means is simply this. We're either thinking the way we should be thinking, because I think the enemy, the beast, has actually been functioning for 2,000 years. But we have this idea, because we've been taught everything is in the future, that this is all in the future. And I'm going to argue today that you're either following the lamb or following the beast. You're either thinking like the beast or you're thinking like the lamb. You're either embracing God's values or you're embracing the cultural value system. And I would even suggest that there are Christians today who name the name of Jesus but who have a cultural worldview and are actually defeated in their lives. They're actually embracing the mindset of the beast. And that's the mark of the beast. And when you have it in your mind, how many know out of your mind becomes your activity? The way you see life, the way you think about life, becomes how you live your life. And so hands speak of your actions, your activity. Let me just keep moving on here. So who exactly is the 144,000? Well, there's a group out there. They'll tell you who that is. But it's not them. They think it's them, but it's not so who is the 144,000? Some of you ca- caught on to this. You know, if you belong to a certain sect, they believe that they are the 144,000, you know, and everybody else is. But let me, let me point out to you, it depends how you interpret the book of Revelation. Now, I've tried over the last number of months to give you some interpretive keys. Remember I told you there's two genres here? One's futuristic and one's apocalyptic. I believe that this Bible... What do you mean by apocalyptic, Pastor? It means that it's a bunch of symbols that speak of the end time. It speaks of this catastrophic uh, battle between the forces of righteousness and the forces of darkness. And how many are getting a picture? Revelation is like that. And there's all these symbols in there. We've already named one. The lamb, that's a symbol. The beast, you know, with seven heads you know, or ten heads and seven horns or whatever it is. You know what I'm saying? It's a beast. It's a monster, right? It's a monster, It is. It is a monster. And we need to understand that. But when we look at this, if you have a futuristic viewpoint, that's a certain group, and many of us have been taught this way. This is all in the future, and we all take this stuff literally. How many know that you don't take the dragon as a literal symbol? And everybody kind of figures that out, right? We know it's representative of something. I'm going to tell you that the futurists would tell you simply, in a literal viewpoint, that these 144,000 are Jews and that they are in the Great Tribulation, right? How many were taught that? See, I got my hand up. Boy, only a few of you. What if? Oh, okay, some of you. Most of you guys weren't taught any of this stuff. Okay, that's good. I don't have to go past all that. But let me just say this. Because of the genre... I think it would be better to understand the 144,000 as the believers. Where do you come up with this, Pastor? Let me just read a little further on in the text. It says here in verse 2, And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like the loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. Now this is not, you know, creative musicians writing new tunes, okay? It's not a new song that way. I think sometimes we we interpret things that way. The new song is the one that the people who know God sing. Listen to what it says. No one can learn the song except the 144,000 who have been redeemed from the earth. In other words... This is the song of redemption. This is the song that you and I sing because God's grace has filled our heart. We now know God in a personal way. We have a song in our hearts. This is the song. It's a song that we, we sing because we've experienced God's forgiveness. That's the new song. Then it says, These are those who did not defile themselves with women for they remain virgins. So now if we take this literally, it sounds like we're you know, against women. You know, Going, no, this is not celibacy in that sense. This is symbolic for something else. Uh, it says, They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as firstfruits to God in the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths, and they are blameless. These are all terms describing the church. And I'm talking about the church, both past and present. I'm talking about the people from the Old Testament who maybe didn't confess Jesus as Lord because Christ hadn't come yet, but they were followers and faithful to God. And I'm talking about the ones afterwards who came to become followers of Christ. And how many know when you put the two together, that's the ultimate covenant people of God? And I believe the 144,000 are those people. And you say, why is that? Because... When you study the Bible, you have this interesting imagery. And here's the imagery, both in Old and New Testament, that God's people were to be faithful to God. And if they were unfaithful to God, the Bible talked as if we were committing adultery. Because God uses the analogy of the marriage relationship to describe our relationship with Him. And so we read verses like this in Jeremiah. uh, Well, Robert Wall says it this way. He says, it's better to view the community's sexual chastity as a metaphorical of its pure or sanctified relationship with God. This conclusion is consistent with Old Testament rhetoric, which often compares the faithfulness or unfaithfulness of Israel to sexual fidelity or infidelity. Isn't that true? Now listen to Jeremiah. He says, this is what the Lord says. Inquire among the nations. Who has ever heard anything like this? The most horrible thing has been done by virgin Israel. She's been unfaithful to God. Okay, she's, she's become, she's not chaste, she's not pure. Hosea is an interesting prophet. He has problems in his personal life. His wife is unfaithful to him. And God uses that as an analogy to explain that's what Israel's been doing to God. They've been unfaithful to God. Listen to what Hosea says. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. A spirit of prostitution is in their hearts. They do not acknowledge the Lord. He said the reason why they're not turning back to God is because they've prostituted themselves. They've been unfaithful to God. They're worshiping other gods. And we see that throughout the Old Testament. What about the New Testament, Pastor? Same thing. Paul says, I want to present you to Christ as, an, as a chaste bride. You know? In the, you know how they had a betrothal in the in the New Testament times? You were engaged to this woman, but you didn't come together for a season, but you were as good as married, and you had to remain chaste and you were required to remain chaste before and then you were to remain faithful to your spouse throughout your marriage. By the way, that is God's standard and it still applies today. We need to know that. See, we're, we're buying in, I think, a lot to where the culture's gone. And what I'm noticing is more and more Christians are embracing more and more of the cultural understanding of life. And they're distorting the word of God. We're going to see that in a few minutes here. Uh, do you know that the Bible portrays wisdom as a woman? How many know that? It actually does. See you ladies how smart you are? Look at what it says here. Uh, Proverbs 8.1 it says, do not call, Does not wisdom call out? Does not understanding raise her voice? Then it says, out in the open, wisdom calls aloud. She raises her voice in the public square. On the top of the wall, she cries out. At the city gate, she makes her speech. Repent at my rebuke, and then I will pour out my thoughts to you, and I will make known to you my teachings. Now, by the way, you know, a lot of people call this lady wisdom. Lady wisdom is actually God, God's wisdom, right? But, it's, but he uses the imagery of a woman. Now, he also portrays... Folly or moral deficiency as a woman, too. How many know that? Sorry, ladies, you're kind of being picked on today. You're out, you know, but there's wise women and then there's wisdom that women that are not so wise. And we read here in Proverbs chapter 2 wisdom will save you also from the what? The adulterous woman, the unfaithful woman, from the wayward woman with her what? Seductive words. So she's out seducing with her words. And then it says here, who has left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God. Surely her house leads down to death and her paths to the spirits of the dead. Wow, those are strong words, are they not? And so basically he's saying, you have two women and they're vying for your attention and they're trying to get you to go down their path. And there's the woman that's wise that are saying, this is the way you need to live and walk. And then there's this, Woman who's unfaithful, and she 's trying to lead people to an unfaithful relationship with God, and that 's the two options that are found in the book of Proverbs, and I believe are found through the entire scriptures. You know it 's only in this relatively last 50 years that there's been such a multiplicity of choices. But you know what the sad part is? Broad is the way that leads to destructions. All of these choices are actually all part of the broad path, and then there's a narrow road that leads to God, and that 's the one we want to be on. We also find that this picture is used in the book of Revelation of a woman, chapter 12. Remember the woman that was giving forth birth to a man-child. Now we know that that was, you know, some scholars believe that was Mary giving birth to Christ. Some will argue that was the nation of Israel giving birth to, you know, the Christianity, you know, through Christ. Regardless of how you see her, there's a woman portrayed there. She's a good woman who the dragon, the serpent, is trying to kill. We write, read that in chapter 12. But then in chapter 21, we also read of a woman who's getting married to Christ. And that's us. You know, I know, guys, that's kind of hard for you to wrap your head around. It, it is for me, too. But we're a bride. Whoa, I don't think of myself as a bride. Girls, you can follow this far better than we can. We're the bride of Christ. And we're going to have this marriage union. There's going to be a consummation one day when we meet Jesus face to face. And that'll be awesome. That's going to be great. You know, but we're engaged to him right now. And then we read this in Revelation chapter 2 and I think it's important because this was written to the church, right? He says nevertheless I have this against you. This is to the church at Thyatira. Nevertheless I have this against you. You've tolerated that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality. In other words, God allows that evil to remain. How many see that? I've given her a time. So evil is in the church. He's given it for a time, but she's unwilling. So nobody can say, well, God never gave me an opportunity. God is the most gracious person on the planet. As a matter of fact, the reason why God does not exercise judgment after everything we do wrong is God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God's long-suffering towards us when we do the wrong thing. And it's so that we'll get our act together. Then it says, So I'll cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. And I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches the hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Wow, God's evaluating what we're doing. So, you know, sometimes as Christians we can get lazy and we don't do a lot. I'm going, that's not a good thing. Because truly when you're following the Lamb and you're obeying Him, there'll be things that you'll be doing and God's evaluating that. Now, He mentions this woman Jezebel. Who is Jezebel? Well, you have to go back to the Old Testament. And in 1 Kings chapter 18 all the way to 2 Kings chapter 9, you have the story of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. And Queen Jezebel was a foreign princess who came into an alliance with the northern kingdom, and she was vile because she was an idol worshiper, and she married Ahab, who succumbed to her gods. And we know the story of Israel succumbing to Baal worship, and to Ashereth, and all these gods. And she was evil. I mean, you read the story, some of the things she did was terrible. Killing innocent people. And really, a picture of persecuting, you know, the the godly, she was doing that. And she even went after good old Elijah, threatened his life. So we see this picture of Jezebel. Well, she was a false teacher. And she promoted idolatry in the northern kingdom and had brought the northern kingdom down. We need to know that. So finally in the book of Revelation, we have a woman described as a prostitute in chapter 17. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit in the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. This is obviously the Antichrist. And the woman is a prostitute sitting on this beast. So who is this woman? The woman is dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. Obviously ostentatious. Isn't that true? I mean, lots of wealth. This represents materialism, folks. Can you see it? And materialism has a seductive power. Do we realize that? It really does. We can get so consumed by materialism. And if we don't serve God first, you know, we end up serving things that God blesses us with rather than the blesser. And it gets us into trouble. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people. Wow. The blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. In other words, it's a picture. She was, this woman was doing what? She was prosecuting, persecuting, murdering and martyring God's people. Not a nice person, would you not say? Don't want to meet this lady, but we all have met her because we're all confronted by her all the time. And when I saw her, I was greatly astonished. And as you read through the chapter, he says, I'll tell you who she is. And then verse 18, the woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Let me just go back here and say this. Babylon was a nation empire, right? A city empire that ruled over the world. Remember Nebuchadnezzar? And he conquered Israel, God's people. Did he not? And Judah and took him into captivity it's representative of something now in verse 18 he says that here the woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth when is this written it's written way later Babylon has already been defeated what kingdom is now ruling and reigning while John is writing Rome and so this now represents Rome but when we stop there that's Rome and John's day but whenever we find a government opposed to the kingdom of God, we have this prostitute. You see, it's not just, you know, we get so locked into, it's this time, this place, this this city. No, it's whatever that's opposing the kingdom of God. And what Satan is trying to do is take over institutions like government. If he can take over the church and corrupt it, he does. He keeps working because when he does that, then evil begins to prevail in the culture. <clears throat> so where do we find hope when evil is prevailing around us? And I think we're moving towards that even in our own time. And if we're not awake to this, you'll experience it. Believe me, we'll suffer. <clears throat> A consideration of ultimate reality sustain the people of God. They must pass through troubles. But they must know that their troubles are temporary, whereas those of their tormentors will be eternal. So here's the good news. Though you and I in this world will have trouble, it's not eternal trouble. It will pass. We won't always have these difficulties. Jesus said, be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. So all the troubles that you and I are personally experiencing right now, I can declare to you, it's temporary. That's good news. But the people who are creating the trouble, not so good news for them. They're going to have eternal trouble. That's what he's telling us. How many see that there's a contrast here between the lamb that's standing on a mountain, which is rock, right? And then the earlier chapter, the beast is standing on the shore of the sea, which is sand. And immediately my mind went to this contrast. I go, well, look at this. You know, Christ's foundation is solid. The beast's foundation, Satan's foundation, all of his empire is sand. It's temporary and will be destroyed. And Jesus tells us a parable. Remember the parable where he says, those that do the word of God, they're like building their house on what? On a rock. And that's going to stand when the storms come. But if you and I are building houses in the sand, when the storms come, they're going to collapse. Here's what you need to know. Satan is the great real estate agent. He's out there trying to sell people property on sand and build their entire lives on this house on a, built on a sand. But when the storms come, that house is going to be wasted. In other words, your life is going to come to nothing. You're going to be destroyed. All of your troubles, you think you don't have them now. Wait till you have eternal trouble. It'll be forever trouble. But those who say, you know what? I'm going to build my life or my house on the real estate that Christ secured. I'm going to be a follower of the Lamb. Boom. When the troubles come, you're going to be able to stand. You're going to get through that trouble. That's the good news. I love these images. They're really powerful, aren't they? Robert Wall says, Viewed from the perspective of its contrasting images, this passage focuses John's account of Christian discipleship that is worked out within a historical situation of human suffering and abundant evil. What is he basically saying? He says, listen, and I was listening to someone share the other day. Think of this beautiful illustration. Do you know everything And created that's living, plant, people, animals, they're designed with a purpose. I mean, if you take an acorn, you know what's going to happen eventually. It has an outcome, doesn't it? It's not going to become a monkey. How many know that? Sorry, Charles Darwin. It's not going to happen. <clears throat> right? You know, it's got a purpose. It's going to become a tree, Right? How many know that? Of course, you say, that's so obvious, Pastor. You know, when we have a child, you know, it starts out. Do you know that little child in a mother's womb, it had, it, at the end, it has an amazing purpose. That could become whatever, whatever the design inside that child is going to be, poof, it's going to come out at the end. It has an end purpose. I love that. And God, in our lives, has an end purpose for us. Isn't this beautiful? When you and I come to Christ and we're born again of the Spirit, God has an end purpose for you. You say, what's my end purpose, Pastor? You're going to become like Jesus. Is that amazing? And so God harnesses. I love this. God is able to control evil. There's not one person in this room who can control outcomes and evil. God can control it. And He uses everything in our lives, the difficulties, the troubles, the, all the things that are happening, the good things, the blessings, he can use those things and bring them out to an amazing outcome. At the end, you and I become like Christ. And you know what? Every one of us in this room has different things happening to make us get to that end point, which I think is amazing. So then what are the 144,000 doing? Well, they're singing that new song, and they're, they're staying faithful to God. Remember, they're Chase. They're, it says they're virgins. They're, they're they're first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie is found in their mouth. They're not copying the father of lies. By the way, if you're if you're following the beast, you're going to end up being a liar. If you're following the lamb, you're going to end up starting to walk in truth. That's the way it works. If you follow the beast, you're going to live you know, a life full of blame. If you follow the lamb, you're going to live a blameless life. And Jesus and and Paul writes this, he says that when we come to Jesus, he's he you know God is trying to help us become a pure and faultless bride without, without spot or wrinkle. Isn't that amazing? God's working on us. You know, sometimes we look at ourselves and go, I'm a long ways from that. But God is working. He's not done with us. And I brought that out last week. God is in a process with us. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? I love this. <clears throat> well, faithful disciples of the sword who make up the 144,000 are untainted by the lies and fictions of secularism and materialism. In other words, we're not buying the goods. We're not buying the lies of the enemy. We're not buying the media. We're not buying, you know, what's being propagated as the way to live. And how many know there's such a distortion from the ways of God being promoted by our society? How many know that's true? You know, we're in a battle, folks. And it's a battle for our minds. And they are blameless, and therefore they are acceptable to God. However, they're eschatological. That's Robert Wald. He's a... New Testament scholar. It just means the end of things. Their their eschatological fitness, the very end, is not only the result of their faithful response to God and God's Lamb, their faithfulness is a real possibility because of God's empowering and enabling grace. In other words, what he's saying to us here is, you and I have God at work in us to help us get to the end. Are you happy with that? See, it says, Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. You know, we keep thinking, it's about us. I'm going, no, it's about God. You see, you can even interpret the word faith as faithful. You know, God is the author and finisher of our faithfulness. So I'm, I'm, I'm hanging on to that. I'm going, God, I know I'm a rascal. I just need your help to make it to the end. God says, no problem. I'm greater than you. Go, well, thank God. You just have to choose and yield to me and it'll work. Just watch. Let me move on to the second uh, interrelated visions here. You see here in verse six, then I saw another angel flying in midair and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Now I want you to notice in chapter 13 that expression, every nation, language, that, that language. Everybody, it says, on the earth, that, that expression was worshiping the beast, except those whose, whose names, the, they had the lamb, okay? So it's, it's real simple, guys and gals. Real simple. We're either following the beast or following the lamb. And if you're following the lamb, you're not following the beast. And if you're following the beast, you're not following the lamb. But the good news is, we can make a choice still. We can choose to follow the lamb. We can reject the the ways of this world, we can reject the beast and all that he stands for. He said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. In other words, worship the one who created everything. How many know it's good to be on the side of the one who's above everything? God, who is greater than Satan. This is not dualism. Satan is not equal to God. Don't get that thought. That's a wrong understanding. Satan is subservient to God. And Satan knows it. He can only do so much. He can only do what God allows him to do. How's that? So I want to be on the side. The winning side. How many like to win? I like winning. I want to be on the winning side. Well, Jesus is the winning side, folks. That's what I'm trying to tell you. And then there's the announcement of the eternal gospel. And what we're going to discover is that the evil one is trying to use human institutions to corrupt human structures and forced his agenda upon the people. Now, years ago, I was introduced to a German pastor. Let me move it back because otherwise you'll start reading it. His name was Helmut Tillich. Tillich was pastoring in Nazi Germany and he was even pastoring when the Allies were dropping bombs on the German cities. He had 4,000 people in his congregation. How many know when, when people are dying, people are paying attention to hope? Because there was no hope in that land. Because eventually they started losing the war. And it was pretty bad. Pretty soon they started awakening that they had been believing a lie. People started flocking to church. Tilica speaking. And so he lived through this whole experience. And now in 1963 he's traveling in the United States. And everybody wants to know. How does a country like Germany. Who had the great reformer Martin Luther. Had the reformation. Had great you know, people like Bach and Beethoven. These great People that created great music, and people are singing the great music, and this great Christian nation with all these missionaries out there. How could a great Christian nation succumb to Nazism? How many think that's a good question? Is that a good question? Doesn't that kind of intrigue you? How in the world did that happen? Antilica, not trying to, you know, say that, you know, get out of make any excuses, he shares this insight with an American audience. He said, you cannot look at what happened in Germany from a distance like a disinterested spectator, viewing a spectacle of nature, but rather that here we are confronted with an excess of subhumanity which is potentially present wherever there are human beings. What is he saying? He's saying it could happen anywhere. It could happen any place. And it could happen any time that people that seem to be okay, given the right context, something can happen. Then he says this. This potentiality is present in America too. Here too, as Nietzsche, he was a German philosopher, said, the thin film over the boiling lava can burst one day and bring to light abysses which no comfortable, self-confident citizen has ever dared to reckon with. What he's saying is, there's just a little fine veneer civilization And when you get past it, there's a lot of ugly stuff underneath. And if it ever comes to the surface, you'll see evil like you've never seen before. You'll see people do things they can't believe. And you know what happens? And this is how it happens. When people feel they don't have a choice, and this is not what happened in Germany, once the Nazis seized power, and once the Gestapo started arresting people and putting them in concentration camps and executing people, once people lived under that kind of fear, people just succumbed to the evil. And eventually, they just became part of the evil. And eventually, they even became instruments of the evil. Is that sad? It is sad. And that's why we have to resist. That's why we have to, you know, battle. Battle. We have to start by battling the evil within our own souls. And then we've got to battle the evil around us and recognize it for what it really is and stand up for freedoms and speak up and not capitulate to the evil around us. You know, Robert Walsh says, according to apocalypsism, human society corrupts human souls. From a sociological perspective, people tend to view themselves as powerless in the face of the beast's corrosive and coercive powers, simply to survive, they find it necessary to enlist in the beast's war against the saints. And so what begins to happen then is that the society begins to persecute the church. And so I write, so persecution is the inevitable outcome of a society that rejects God. What am I saying to you? I'm saying if our society continues in its present trajectory, you and I can expect persecution. That's what I'm telling you. And I'm telling you, the people that you think are so wonderful, so great, there's a fine veneer that one day will pop and you will see an ugliness that you can't believe exists. And if you don't think that's true, you should just study what happened in Rwanda with the genocide there and the tribal warfare and how neighbors, you know, just months before were friends, they were laughing, they had meals together, were now killing each other. And you go, what in the world happened? Evil. Evil. It's evil. And Satan gets into those places. So, here's the good news. I don't want you to end on a sober negative note. Babylon will fall. The gospel announces this message of hope and it's eternal in nature. When evil happens in our world, we can be sure that it has a short shelf life. Evil and the systems driving them are not eternal. Verse 8, and the second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. And Daryl Johnson says, Babylon clearly does not refer to the ancient city in the desert of Iraq. That city has fallen centuries before John wrote. By the first century, Babylon has become kind of a code word for humanity living in rebellion against God. And so I want to just declare to you, we're living in Babylon. And we need to understand it. We need to understand what's going on. This is what's happening. Our culture is living in rebellion against God. But God says it's not going to last. It's going to come to an end. And then we read this in chapter 9. We see the wine of God's fury. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hands, they too will drink the wine of God's fury which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. So what we have witnessed is the proclamation of the gospel, the defeat of evil, and then the harsh judgment that happens that to those who reject God's grace. And then, we say, and then you say, well, pastor, this is offensive to me. I'm offended by what you just said. I'm offended by you just even reading this book of Revelation. It's kind of offensive, isn't it? Anybody a little shocked by these strong statements of God's judgment? Aren't we a little shocked by it? We don't hear it anymore. But let me just tell you something. Do you realize that we should not try to be offensive, but that there's an offense in the gospel, and that Jesus actually offended people, and that was why they crucified him? And if Jesus were alive right now in the city of Red Deer, he would actually offend people. And I would even argue that he would offend some of us as Christians. And we need to understand that because when you're, when you're talking the truth, sometimes it hurts. Isn't that true? It's painful. It is painful. You know what? Listen to what Paul says. This is what God... You know... Let's say we're being persecuted. Can you imagine you're being persecuted right now? And here's the word that Paul writes to persecuted Christians. God is just. How many say, thank God, God is just? He's the only just person. He's the only one that knows what's right from wrong. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. Hey, you know what? You don't need to defend yourself. God will defend you. As a matter of fact, a lot of times we get in God's way to step back. Let God deal with the problem. And give relief to you who are troubled. How many here you're saying, well, I have some troubles, Pastor. i got people that are really doing some stuff to me, but I'm saying step back. Let God bring relief to you in your trouble and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels and he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's an important point. Don't tell me I know God. The question I should be asking myself is, am I obeying the gospel? Am I doing what God wants me to do? They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you have believed our testimony to you. And someone says, hold it, pastor. I thought God is loving and compassionate. This sounds pretty intense. How many say this sounds kind of intense? Don't you think we're going to have some people saying we better ban the Bible? This has got some intense stuff in it. This could be censored one day, this book. Think about it. But let's keep going. I thought God was loving and compassionate. Many struggle with the fact that God is just and will address sin and evil. So why does God tolerate sin and evil in our world? And yes, sometimes even tolerates evil in our lives. And you say, why do you say he's tolerating it? Because when we're sinning and God's not dealing with it in our lives, we think we're getting away with it. I'm going, no, 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 no. Just because judgment is not speedily executed does not mean we're getting away with anything. God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The primary reason is that he's committed to giving all of us the freedom of choice. And you can't give people freedom of choice unless you have to keep You have to give them space to make mistakes and you have to let them learn and give them the space to repent. Otherwise, you're not giving anybody a choice. I mean, if God was zapping me every time I did something wrong, I would just be like a little automatic robot doing all the right things, right? I'd be like Pavlov's dog. I'd be getting zapped to do the right stuff, you know? Behavioral psychology. That's not what he's doing. Freedom to choose or reject him. Freedom to love him freely or to ignore him or despise him. You know, C.S. Lewis says something very powerful in his book, The Great Divorce. Anybody read that book, The Great Divorce? Okay, a couple? Yeah, a few, just a few of us. Okay, The Great Divorce is not about marriage. The Great Divorce is about heaven and hell. You didn't know that. It's about our relationship with God. This is what Lewis says. I love this quote. He said, there are only two kinds of people in the, world, in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those whom God says in the end, thy will be done. In other words, you're doing what you want to do. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. In other words, if you want God, you can have him. But if you don't want God, you won't have him. And can I tell you, when you don't have God, you have hell. Because in the presence of God, there's fullness of joy. And the only joy that all of us on this planet have, saint and sinner alike, comes from God. God is blessing every human being on this planet, whether they deserve it or not. But the day they make a choice, I don't want anything to do with God, that will be the ultimate hell. And when we die that way, it will be hell. Because there'll be no joy. No joy. Wow. So what is God trying to communicate to us? The church in the midst of great evil that seems to be prevailing in our society. The evil, first of all, you need to know that will not ultimately triumph. God is actually in control. He's allowing it. There may be challenges. There may be temptations. Yes, there may even be threats to our lives. But throughout the Bible, we find that God is a savior. You know, last night I was laying down I was thinking, okay, God, I got to close. I need an illustration. There's got to be one in the Bible that talks about God triumphing over evil. You know what happened to my mind? Immediately, boom, 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 boom. All kinds of things started popping in my mind. Let me give you an example. It started in the garden where evil seduced our first parents, but God made a promise and provided a sacrifice, and he clothed them. God defeated the evil purposes at Babel by con- causing confusion and scattering them. When all people could think about was evil, God brought a f- flood and spared the one righteous person in his family. When evil had ensnared a nation in Egypt, God delivered them and brought them to the promised land. When his own people succumbed to evil in the land, God expelled them and humbled them. And only then did he restore them. And when evil did its ultimate expression by crucifying our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, God raised them up. And in Jesus' death and resurrection, evil was defeated. We see the final triumph of God's grace over all evil. I love these verses from Revelation because this is really the end of it. We're just coming around and having it more defined for us. But it says, The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on the throne before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was. And then it stops. Because another verse, it says, and who was to come. But he doesn't have to come anymore because he's come. And it says, because you have taken your great power and and have... Begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and your people who revere your name both great and small and for destroying those who destroyed the earth. And who are those who destroyed the earth? Satan, the false prophet, the prostitute, right? The world system, These are the things that are destroying the earth. And isn't it ironic that sometimes the people who say that they love the earth and worship the earth are actually the ones culpable of destroying the earth. It's interesting. Let's stand. You know, I was thinking about this this morning and I shared it in the first service. I remember that evil, it's so intimidating when it comes. Isn't that true? We can even be paralyzed with fear when evil really seems to have its full power. And I was thinking of the story of David and Goliath. And here were God's people, terrified of this giant called Goliath. Isn't that true? They were frozen. In the, they weren't doing anything about it. Leadership didn't do anything. Nobody was doing anything. David comes on the scene. I love David. You go, what's with David? You know what David does? He sees not just The giant, you know, these people, all they could see was the evil and they were living in fear. That's what the enemy wants to do. He's the author of fear. He wants to create such fear in our lives that we make bad decisions. That's true. David comes along and he goes, this giant is defying God's people. But really, it's deeper than that. Because when you are persecuting God's people, who are you persecuting? You're persecuting God. David says, this guy is fighting against God. Let me ask you a question. If God is going to fight a battle, who do you think is going to win? God's going to win. So David comes up to this guy. Now David has no confidence in himself. You say, how do you know? He picked up five smooth stones. If I miss with the first one, I'll use the second one. If I miss with the second one, I'll use the third one. Come on, you guys. You know, why did he pick up five? Why didn't he just pick up one? He picked up five because he says, I'm going to do what it takes. He grabbed as many as he could and put it in his pocket, right? He's coming to this giant, and the giant is mocking him and going, you got to be kidding me. This is the best you guys can bring, you know? And David's got no suit of armor on, but he's got, a, he's got the armor of God. You see, you don't have to have the outward form, but if you've got the inward life, something can happen and David comes up to this giant, and the giant says to him, Man, you know, you're coming with sticks and stones. That's where we got that little song, Sticks and Stones May Break My Bones. Hey, listen, they will, if God's in it. And David comes up, and he says, Yeah, but you come to me with a spear and a shield. But he says, I'm not coming to you with sticks and stones. I'm coming to you in the name of the Lord. You have defied the Most High God, and you're coming down, buddy. And David took him down. And it was such a great victory. You see, for 40 days, evil had triumphed. But when David came on the scene, God's servant, evil, was destroyed. And God's people experienced victory. It takes a lot of courage to be a David in that moment. How many say that's true? But you know, you and I have a chance every single day to be a David. There are people that you work with. There are people that are saying all kinds of stuff. There are all kinds of things happening around you where people are, pro- you know, even believers are saying stupid things, evil things, you know, worldly things, ungodly things. We should say, hey, what are you doing? You're thinking like the beast, man. If you think like that, you're going to be acting like the beast. You've got to think like the lamb. Because, you know, if you're not following the lamb, you're following the, the beast. See, we would like to think, well, this is all in the future, Pastor. No, it's always been here. And yes, there'll come an ultimate end when we see this played out, the ultimate triumph. But you know, right now, we better get a hold of this stuff because it's happening right now. But a lot of us, we're just pretending it's not existing. It's there. It is there. You don't see it? You know what? I am politically incorrect. Because I'm biblically correct. And if you are biblically correct, you will be politically incorrect in this society. It's the way it works. It's the truth. You're going, yeah, it's the truth. So we have a choice today. Who will we follow? But maybe better yet is who are you following? Who are you following? Let's pray. Every head bowed. How many are saying, I want to follow the Lamb? I got my hand. I want to follow the Lamb. I want to just follow the Lamb. I want to to follow Him no matter what happens. You know, people cause me trouble. Fine, I'm following the Lamb. Because I know my trouble is short-lived. But if you're following the beast, you're going to have trouble for eternity. We have a choice. Let's follow the Lamb. Lord, we just come before You today. We surrender to You the Lamb of God. And we pray that you will guide us, Lord, and we will recognize that though evil is out there and we're even battling within ourselves, Lord, we recognize that you are greater than our troubles. You are greater than evil. You are greater than these problems that we see before us, Lord. And I pray that you will give us discernment and the moral wisdom and courage to stand in this hour When the evil hour comes, it says, above all stand and put on the full armor of God. Help us, Lord, to be fully armorized and standing for you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.